0: Welcome back to another episode of the Inner Podcast. This is 714. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for downloading, tuning in, taking the time to listen. This one is epic. Yeah, I know I say it every show, because actually, if I didn't think a show was good, I wouldn't put it out there. I wouldn't waste your time. But this one is, wow. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. As you will hear At some stages, I literally had no words. Dr. Richard Harris, I met, we're both brand ambassadors for Bremont Watches. Nice little plug for them, go and check them out, Bremont.com, great watches. Harry and I are both ambassadors, and we did a, a speech, a talk a few months ago with the founder, Giles English, and I was like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. And I need to get him on the show. I need to share him with you guys. Harry is a doctor. He also has some... So he's, he's quite unique. He's got letters before his name. Then he's got his name. So he's Dr. Richard Harris. And then he has SC and OAM after. So he's got all of these fancy letters. And they're not... With no disrespect to anyone who's just gone and studied and got some great letters. The letters, one of them stands for Star of Courage, SC. He was involved along with a good friend of his, Craig Challen, in one of the most mind-blowing rescues maybe of the modern era in a cave in Thailand in 2018. Some of you may or may not remember it. And quite thankfully in this show, he talks us through pretty much within 45, 50 minutes, that whole rescue. He's an incredible guy. There's an incredible amount of content about him and Craig now on YouTube, which I will put some links to in the show notes. If you're interested in this stuff, as you can probably tell I am, then definitely check that out. And also, go and check out his podcast. It's called Real Risk, where he talks all things real risk. This will have you on the edge of your seat pretty much the whole way through. As I said, I was lost for words at some points. Harry is an epic bloke, and what him and his colleagues, the people that he was working with in Thailand did, was absolutely incredible. Harry, thank you for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, let's jump into today's podcast. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show, and I'm joined from Australia, Dr. Richard Harry Harris. How are you, mate?
1: G'day, Marcus. Great to join you tonight or this morning. Where are you? Dubai.
0: We're Dubai, mate. So we're about lunchtime. So we're you're probably just calming down and I've just had my lunch and a coffee and I'm ready to chat.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I've just had my tea and my coffee, so.
0: <laughs> Very good, mate. I mean, mate, as a little bit of background, we obviously, we met on a on a chat a few weeks ago. We, we both have the, I guess, good fortune to represent Bremont. Uh, Bremont watches and I was fascinated. I read your story when it happened back in 2019, um, 2018 into 2019 and, and then chatting then I was like, I've got to get this guy on the show. So <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where
1: it comes yeah. from, right? Well, my life has certainly changed since that event in Thailand, so um, you're not the first bloke who's asked me to chat about it since then, and I hope you won't be the last, because um, I have to be honest, the story is pretty amazing, and it's uh, a real privilege still for me to be able to tell it and to have been part of it, so I'm, uh, I'm more than happy to chat.
0: You said something that I want to kick off with, mate, On when we had that chat on Bremont. In the earlier days, I mean, it's only a few years since, but you kind of have not been one for what i think you said it's something like media limelight what's your you know but now i you go on youtube and you're all over it mate what's where what's the background there
1: oh i think um like most people probably the majority of people i was very shy in terms of public speaking and um had no desire whatsoever to be in the media spotlight i never sought fame or or uh, I um, never, never felt like I wanted to be the centre of attention, I'm just a fairly normal and private person and uh, this event kind of changed that for me and it, it was really outside of my control to be honest, but for the first few months I essentially hid away from the limelight, uh, you know, when we returned from, from Thailand. Uh, the first morning after I got back I walked out to pick up the newspaper in the driveway and all the TV cameras were at the end of the driveway sort of pointing their lenses at me and I just went whoa what's this about you know because because to be honest, when we, when we were working in Thailand, we had no appreciation of the size of this story globally. You know, we realized it was a big thing within Thailand, but we didn't understand that it had gone all around the world. And so there was a huge amount of interest in everyone who was involved. And um, so, I, you know, that first few months, I just thought, well, I don't really want, I don't need this, I don't want this, so I just, um, Tucked my head under my wing and, and sort of hid away and tried to get back to life as normal as quickly as possible. In fact, uh, myself and Craig, my offsider, we went out uh, to the Nullarbor Plain as quickly as possible and just hid out there camping in the bush and cave diving for a couple of weeks and hoping that would all have blown over by the time we got back but of course that wasn't the case and I managed to sustain that, um, that level of anonymity for a while until Craig and I were awarded the Australian of the Year Award in the start of 2019 and at that point, to be honest, I think it would have been fairly churlish to continue with that that, uh, that strategy um, because really that that award is, is a pretty big thing in Australia and there's a, quite an expectation that you will come out and, um, you know, do something uh, to give back to the, the country that's given you such an, an honour. So at that point, I just had to suck it up a bit and, and crack on.
0: And here we are now. You're on another show probably about the... 300th interview you've done mate oh god this guy wants to talk about it again
1: (laughs) well as i say it is a a a privilege to have been a part of it and um, as long as people are interested i'm more than happy to chat about it
0: you are doctor and and this was actually something that i hadn't researched obviously before we chatted on the on the bremont chat but you're dr richard harris you go by the name of harry and you have two different sets of letters after your name so you've got you're quite a special human mate you've got doctor before it and then you've got SC and Oam after it which is I, which is probably quite unique. Explain to us what those what SC stands for and what OAM stands for as well.
1: Oh, they were the civilian honours that were given to both Craig and myself and some of the um, Australian Federal Police divers after Thailand. So, SC is the Star of Courage, which is Australia's second highest um, award for gallantry. And OAM is the Order of Australia Medal, which is, um, uh, yeah, just a, like a, a recognition of, of good works for the country, I guess. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, that was the start of it all, actually. That happened pretty soon after Thailand. And that's when it started to occur to me that there might not be any way to hide from this for much longer.
0: (laughs) I love it, mate. I love it. That bit about just going away for two weeks uh, along with Craig when you got back just to hide from it all. It's just, it's absolutely brilliant, mate. Let's jump into it, mate. You've spoken briefly about it. Tell us, What happened in Thailand? What was going on? How did you guys end up over there? Folks might remember this. It was massive in the news internationally, really, in 2018, mate, but give us a little bit of a backstory.
1: Well, you know, it's actually three years um, pretty much to the day yes. that they, uh, the 12 boys from this Mupa or the wild boars soccer team and their 25 year old coach went into the Tam Cave in the very northern part of, of Thailand. I think it was the 23rd of June that they did that. So they would still be in there three years today uh, and um, they became trapped by monsoon flooding, which appeared essentially a couple of hours after they entered the cave so over the back of the mountain unbeknownst to them it was pissing down with rain and the the floodwaters gathered behind them they went in about five kilometers into the cave and as they turned around to come back out they realized the the tunnel was flooded and they couldn't get through. So they found a spot where they could hide above the rising floodwaters, and that's where they sat for another nine days with no food and just drinking the cave water until two British divers managed to get through the floodwaters that far using cave diving techniques uh, Rick Stanton and John Volanthan and um, they found them still alive and still relatively well given you know the exposure and the starvation and so forth over a nine day period. Now I, um, you know myself and Craig Challen, my colleague and and a good friend in all of this, we have been cave divers for many years and you know that is our kind of main passion in life is exploration of underwater caves in particular uh, all around the world. And over the last 10 to 12 years, I'd also developed quite a strong interest in cave rescue, especially that particular problem of trying to rescue people through a flooded section of caves or a sump as we call it. And uh, that was born pretty much out of selfish interest really because there are some places around the world a cave for example you might swim for a couple of kilometers underwater and then emerge into a dry chamber and you might continue to explore there or you might camp in there while you do more exploration or whatever and it occurred to me that if someone had a fall or a medical episode in such a remote place separated from the surface by you know this this body of water how on earth could you rescue someone through the water to get them back to safety and so I started to work on a, a technique for doing that and that led to generating a, a little course that I started to run amongst the cave divers primarily and that course uh, I've, 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 I've taught in a few different states around Australia and also in New Zealand. So, you know, it's a fairly small group of people globally that have this same interest and uh, there's a Facebook group called the Sump Rescue Group that we formed and we all started talking about it. So people in Europe and the States and England and so forth. Um, So we became known to each other, I guess. And so when a couple of guys like these British divers became involved in Thailand, um, I was one of the people that they contacted to chat about, you know, possible solutions. And Rick Stanton, and I were already friends, we'd been on several different expeditions. And so Rick um, thought of me primarily because he came up with this idea that perhaps it would be possible to sedate or even anesthetize these boys to bring them out through the cave because the risk of them panicking uh, during that transit underwater would be close to 100% because, um, you know, it was two and a half kilometres from where the boys were to the entrance and some very difficult terrain underwater, you know, very tightly restrictive, high flow, essentially zero visibility, so, you know, opening your eyes even with a torch on you could see zero, you know, just your hand in front of your face at best. Um, so the idea of someone who wasn't a diver, let alone a cave diver, making a three-hour trip underwater, underground like that is just incomprehensible. So they really needed a plan how to get these kids out in one piece. And you know, anyone who panics underwater dies very, very quickly. There's just, uh, it's a, a rapid transition to through panic to death and drowning. So Rick had this idea which um, he he put to me on the phone.
0: So you get, the, you get a call, mate, and you, you, I presume you'd heard the news of, of what was going on, and, and you get this call from Rick, and you're, you're sat quite comfortably, probably a night like tonight, you've just had your dinner, you're sort of winding down for the day, and it's two things, you're, you're an atheist, and and you're passionate about cave diving, your mind must have just gone, like, oh my God, <laughs> like, what's happening?
1: Well, I had been following the story. Excuse me. I had been following the story, and to be honest, I was quite keen to get over there. I had a strong sense that I could be of help, and, uh, you know, anaesthesia was the last thing on my mind. But um, I just thought perhaps as a cave diving doctor, I could get to the end of the cave where the kids were. Maybe I can look after them, buff them up a bit whilst the the other divers and rescuers came up with a way of getting them out of the cave. And I didn't know what that that way could be at that stage. And so I had been following the, the story right from the start, really, and communicating with people like Rick and some other divers on the ground. And when Rick said that really they had looked at every every possible approach to getting these kids out, and basically there was no chance in his view that this rescue could be done suc- uh, successfully or safely. Yeah. And he was pretty despondent, to be honest. He had really decided these kids were going to perish in the cave, and, um, and then he and John had just talked about this idea of sedating them, so he just wanted to see what my thoughts on that were. And look, I don't think you need to be a cave diver or an anaesthetist to realise that if you take a, a, a well child and render them unconscious with an anaesthetic and then push their head underwater and expect that three hours later they're still going to be alive, you know, that's just I- impossible. And, um, you know, and, and this wasn't just a theoretical concept to me, because during some of the cave rescue training that we'd done, I had actually pretended to be a a disabled, unconscious person and been taken through a cave underwater with me trying to do zero to assist myself. And even using a full face mask, which would seal all the way around your face so you don't have to hold a regulator or a mouthpiece in, I found that there was no way that I could effectively keep the water out of the mask. Eventually it would sort of trickle in and creep up and would have, uh, you know, theoretically drowned me if I hadn't taken some active, active steps to clear it. So I was convinced that that alone would would be the undoing of these children, let alone all the other possible things that could go wrong with an unconscious person underwater. So I said to Rick, that, that is impossible. It, you know, it's a preposterous idea, but. I'm still happy to come over if you think I can help and I'm sure Craig is is keen to come as well so he basically said well we've got no better p- ideas so um we'll get you over here and he spoke to the Australian um army people actually that were on the ground there as well and that was it we were off
0: What was on your mind mate you said that you had you'd been following the story and you had a couple of ideas and 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 aside from the fact that you knew that the the anesthetic was was not a good idea anyway what what were you thinking
1: i didn't have any better ideas I'll, (laughs) I'll, i'll admit but but you know i hadn't been there and i hadn't really seen the lay of the land so i couldn't um you know contribute in any practical way without getting over there and you know, with the thousands of people involved, it was unlikely that I was going to be the pair of eyes that suddenly saw an obvious solution. However, as I said, I was happy to sit in the back of the cave with these kids for a few days and yeah. and look after them, treat whatever maladies they might have at that stage, and um, yeah, just just keep them alive until someone did come up with a plan. And I, you know, I had no idea what that could be.
0: So you get on a plane and you land in Thailand, and and I remember the part you explaining this when you when you landed on the on the tarmac on the on 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 the runway where the where the plane was you saw a coffin and you asked one of the one of the ground services or the air crew what that was talk us through that mate and 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 what happened and how that made you feel
1: Yeah, I was just walking across the aero bridge off the plane in Chiang Rai Airport, which is the airport we landed in up north. And uh, as you say, I could see these uh, military personnel pushing a coffin into the back of a a Thai Navy aircraft draped in a Thai flag. And uh, the person next to me said, oh, that must be the diver who drowned this morning. So this was about seven or eight in the morning. And apparently at half past one that morning, uh, a former Thai Navy seal called Saman Gunan had perished in the cave. And uh, from what I understand, although there's kind of mixed reports about exactly what happened, but he was taking some equipment of some kind through to the children. Um, Because by then, uh, you know, the kids had been found, obviously Rick and John and some other British divers had started taking supplies through to the kids, uh, food and, and water and some medical equipment. And four Thai Navy SEALs had actually managed to get to the kids as well, following the big rope that Rick and John and others had put in and they were now babysitting the kids. So this guy was taking uh, some other equipment through and whether he lost the line in the zero visibility and got disorientated and ran out of air or exactly quite what happened, I'm not sure, but he he drowned and lost his life uh, that morning. So, yeah, I mean, that was pretty somber wake up for me because at this point, this was all a bit of a hypothetical exercise and it was a bit of an adventure, I guess something that I had uh, volunteered for with, you know, I I was keen to go and try and put all these skills to to work that I felt I could contribute. Um, And it was a timely reminder that, you know, this was a pretty full on mission that we were embarking on.
0: So you get to the opening of the cave or, or, or the scene, mate, obviously you've, it must be quite weird because you've gone from trying to figure it out on the couch at home to having a phone call to getting on a plane, to seeing this coffin and, and this whole build-up, And now you're probably, I would imagine you're kind of in emergency mode. You're like, there's a lot going on. Explain to us on arrival, like how things feel and you're obviously super cool under pressure mate and in these, these high pressure situations. So how do you sort of deal with that? And how do you feel when, when you arrive at the cave?
1: Well, I was certainly trying to appear outwardly cool, although I can tell you the, the emotions were <laughs> were running. But I think it is a it is a, a trick that you can learn is to try and put on a calm face, even <laughs> though you're shitting yourself on the inside. Um, because in you know in these sort of situations, people um, you know in my line of work, for example, as an anaesthetist or working in various critical care situations, you know the doctor is often uh the team leader or can be the team leader so it doesn't do anyone any any good if you if the if the boss seems to be panicking so you do learn to put on a bit of a calm exterior while you're scrabbling for answers yeah. so i remember very clearly getting out of this van that had driven me up to the cave site and um, the the van door opens and step out into this quagmire of mud and rain and a sea of people wearing what looked like hundreds of different uniforms and badges and, you know, mostly ties, but also some Europeans walking around. And it it looked completely chaotic and disorganized. But after a while, you start to see there is some order to things. And in fact, you know, things were going along pretty well by then. I mean, they'd been there for um, what 12 or 13 days by the time we got there. And, um, you know, the media throng immediately gathered around me. Here's a new face. What's this bloke bringing to the, to the party, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so that was my first ever experience of that paparazzi where, you know, you've got 20 cameras around you all poking microphones in your face. Who are you? What are you doing here? Oh, you've got an Australian aid shirt on. Yeah. Um, what's your role? And it said doctor on the back. So, okay, there's another clue. And so immediately the, the rumour mill starts, you know, running and, you um, And it was equally funny back in Australia, my wife said that, you know, there's this uh, mysterious Australian doctor appears on the scene and everyone's trying to work out who it is and uh, the Australian media is, you know all talking about who, who is this person they're all trying to work it out and there's photos of me going around yeah, so that must have been pretty amusing <laughs> um, but my first priority was to find the british divers and to check in with them just to talk about two things i mean obviously where were they up to with the boys and the plan but also to find out about the cave itself because you know the british guys are in a league of their own they are super super good cave divers and and, cavers. Right. and um, you know, I, I know them well enough to, to know that they're pretty unflappable. And so if they're concerned about the diving conditions or the dangers in the cave, then that certainly puts me on guard. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to just find out if if I was up to the job, you know, there's no point putting your own life at risk um, in, in an environment that you're not capable of, of working effectively in because then you just become a, a part of the problem, you know, an, an additional problem. So that was my first question, you know, what's the cave like and am I going to be all right to get to the far end to do anything for these kids, let alone this stupid anaesthetics idea?
0: <laughs> and what, what was the reaction, mate? Like, how do you, just to, to, to give it some context, like, how do you measure a cave? How do you categorize a cave and, and what, what, where on the scale was this particular cave?
1: Yeah, well every cave is different. Um, The thing that worried me about this one was that it was a dry cave that was actively flooding. Now you normally would not go anywhere near a cave like that. You would just go dry caving in the dry season in winter you'd go somewhere else. um, Because it's unpredictable. And you know, when Rick and John and some of the other divers first arrived on site, the strength of the river that started flowing out of the entrance was such that they couldn't make any headway into it at all. They couldn't, you know, even pull themselves hand over hand into it and uh, it was quite dangerous. So they uh, abandoned their attempts to get in there uh, initially and then went back again, same result, and it took a few days before the water level Dropped just a little bit sufficiently that they made, made some headway and, and that bit of diving that those guys did uh, with the assistance of uh, some others, um, that was extraordinary piece of diving and navigation to get through a cave like that in low visibility. You know, they'd never been in there before. They didn't know exactly where they were going. I would say that's an extraordinarily courageous and uh, skilled piece of diving that they did. Um, so for the rest of us, it was relatively straightforward to just follow the rope, the yep. climbing rope that they had strung through the cave. And um, I, I feel like we've done more difficult or more dangerous caves, but the underlying unpredictability of the cave is the thing that was always in the back of our minds.
0: Yeah. So you get, I mean, mate, that, it, it, it's, it's a wild concept. So the British guys have put this this rope into the cave as, as a guide, which, as you said, is... I mean, for me as someone who's not really into it, my mind is blown literally just by that because I'm thinking of all the things you've said, it's tight, the, the water's running, the the visibility is poor. I'm like, how on earth do they do they get it that they get it in there? So for the layman, mate, it's 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 remarkable anyway. What's your first step now? You you want to get down to see these kids. So what do you do? Do you just strap the tanks on and, and sort of dive in? Or how does it go, mate?
1: Well, pretty much. Um, you know, when the, when the visibility is so low, you're essentially diving by yourself. In fact, we, we do some planned separation between us because the last thing you want is to be trying to winkle yourself through some tiny little crack, um, in zero visibility in high flow water. It, it's kind of a three dimensional, Tetris problem solving sort of thing. And it just takes time and you don't want to be rushed or or rush it. So the last thing you want is someone up your backside, you know, trying to push you through or, um, you know, you might need to reverse and try again, something like that. So we we always separate ourselves by, you know, five, 10 minutes or whatever, so that we have plenty of room. And then we'll get to somewhere in the cave that's open and clear. And uh, maybe it's a drier section where we could stick our heads up above the water and we'll stop there and wait for your mate to catch up and then continue like that. Um so that's that's the way you approach it you just put your head underwater and start following the rope and uh, you know we get a briefing obviously from the Brits yep. to say you know you'll get to this section and don't be fooled by the little rope that goes to the left that's a blind ending so keep to the right and of course you immediately go up the blind ending a few times before you work that one out um but you know remember this is what we do on the weekends this is what yeah. we do for fun and um so whilst some of your listeners might be thinking that doesn't sound very cool at all. That it it is something we enjoy that kind of the diving and the problem solving and so forth, as long as it's all under control and within your experience, then it's all okay.
0: So there's half of you that's that's almost in a way quite excited because this is a new cave, it's something different. But you've got this this huge burden of these lives at the end of at the end of, of of where you're going that have been in there for sort of 12 days that that must be a really sort of interesting situation to be in
1: yeah well the fact that the kids were there at the end of this quest for the end of the rope uh did take the shine off it a little bit yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. you know it would have it would have been a you know a decent days caving if it wasn't for the problem that uh, lay ahead of us um so yeah, or the whole time you're just thinking oh, don't cock this up because you have to get yourself to the end of the cave because these lives are at stake. And you know, still the chances of successfully getting any of these 13 boys plus now four Thai Navy SEALs um, who were an additional, uh, a group of people who were equally in danger, to be honest, because they uh, probably had insufficient air to get themselves back out of the cave, so we had to take fresh cylinders in for them. Oh. So, you know, there's a lot at stake, yeah.
0: So you get there and you find the Thai Navy SEALs and you find the football teammate. What's your first sort of reaction to the situation?
1: I was really impressed by how calm and upbeat and well they all looked um, remembering that they'd had a few days of food in their bellies by then so that that had improved their outlook a little bit and they now had the company of these four pretty impressive adults in the in four thai navy seals one of whom was uh, an army medic or uh, a navy medic and one of whom was a doctor who is a singularly impressive guy called Dr. Puck, who was uh, a a doctor but trained in all the branches of the special services, uh, special forces in in the Thai Army, Navy and Air Force from what I understand. He was certainly an army, I think he was an army, um, fairly high ranking army officer. And he was uh, had an airborne uh, badge and he was a Thai Navy SEAL. So, you know, a little overqualified, I would say, to be sitting in the mud of, at the back of a cave <laughs> in Thailand. Uh, and having a guy like that there, and he spoke quite reasonable English, so we immediately felt this bond, you know, two medical practitioners at the back of the cave able to share some of our mutual worries. Um, that was incredibly reassuring to me, actually, to meet him and see that this guy was totally unflappable. And he was camped in there with the kids, the same as the other three Thai Navy guys. And, um, yeah, they just looked like they were on a bit of a weekend away, you know, sitting on the mud. Um, And I I believe firmly that there was no way those four guys were going to leave those kids at any time. So if it was kind of one in, all in, I think if, if there was no solution to get the kids out, then those guys probably would have died in there with them.
0: So what's the... How do you formulate a plan in that situation? These two Aussies have rocked up. There's four Thai Navy SEALs there. There's a crisis on our hands. What next?
1: I was under quite a lot of pressure to just crack on with this anesthesia idea. Um, The Brits and the Thais had come to the conclusion, I believe, by that stage, that there was no solution to get these kids out. And so Rick and John had started to discuss the anesthesia plan with the, the locals and they were as uh, skeptical as I was I think uh, to be fair and but when I first met the Brits they said look tomorrow we think we should get started because the the meteorologists are telling us that the rains are coming back and we've probably got a short window to get these kids out and if if um, you know if we don't crack on with it then the cave will flood full on again and that'll be it for the for the monsoon season three to four months you know until there's any chance of going back in there which would mean the kids and and then the, the ties would die in the cave so um but i had to push back at that stage just to, again this this concept that the first rule of rescuer rescuing is don't kill the rescuers. So I had to make sure that I felt safe in the cave. Yeah. So I, I really insisted on just diving the next day, going to visit the kids with Craig and making this hypothetical situation to something that I could get my head around. And since I was the one who was being asked to perform this anaesthesia, I felt like the buck for the deaths of all these people was probably gonna stop with me. So I just had to make sure that it was a half reasonable thing to attempt. And I also wanted to give myself 24 hours to look at what else was going on in terms of trying to get the kids out. You know, they were trying to um, pump water out of the cave, drilling with drill rigs down into the cave to bring in fresh food and so forth, find other entrances, all sorts of other plans were in place. But none of them, as it turned out, had any chance of, of success. And um, even the idea of putting as much food as possible in the cave and leaving them there till the end of the monsoon, once I had seen the conditions in which they were living, I, I realized that they would only last a few weeks, even if we could have gotten enough food in there for them, just because the you know, the hygiene and sanitation and stuff was deteriorating so rapidly in there that they would have died of infections or exposure or whatever within a fairly short time. So that was essential and it really clarified in my mind once I'd seen the kids and the, the area they were living, that we had to try something or they would would die, and really the only thing that was available was this sedation plan. So uh, yeah, that's the point where I decided to give it a go. But you know, I remained completely convinced that none of those children could escape alive, even with the sedation. So. You know, people have said to me, well, why would you possibly contemplate doing that if you genuinely believed that all those children would die underwater, under anesthesia? And the answer became very clear and simple in my mind, and that was, well, if I walk away, they're going to die, but it's going to take several weeks and not just a, a terrible physical death, but imagine the the psychological torture of that last period of time. Or we can give them this one in a million chance and, look, in my own mind, at least when they die, they'll be asleep when it happens. Yeah. So that's pretty ordinary justification for a plan, I know, but that's basically how I convinced myself to, to go ahead.
0: You said you went out of the cave and you said, we'll come back the next day. That must have been a, a – me- did you sleep that night, mate? Like, are you just, are you just processing, like – ideas but you don't have any what what's the mindset at that particular for though for the hours that you're out before you went back
1: we had a very clear plan how we were going to attempt the rescue it was just the fact whether it would work or not you know was the the, the worry for me um, so we'd spend a fair bit of time that first night talking it through whilst craig and i dived the cave the next day the british and the american air force uh, Para rescue team took some kids to the swimming pool and practiced in the pool with them, uh, got the equipment side of things sorted out. And um, I had obviously been thinking pretty furiously about, you know, drug doses and techniques and what I could do to what was the safest way and easiest way to anesthetize the kids. So that plan was all in place in my brain. It was just really committing to the decision was the, was the hard part.
0: So when. When did you commit, mate? What happened the next day when you, when you got up and you got there?
1: Well, that night after Craig and I dived, and whilst the Brits had been practicing with the kids in the pool, um, uh, that evening we had a big meeting with the Thai authorities, and it was very late. like Craig and I had a, about a 12-hour day in the cave. We got out and uh, it was you know well after midnight, but by the time the, the meeting finished. And we all presented our part of the plan, what we were prepared to do, and the Tires said, look, you guys go to bed and um, we'll see you in the morning and give you the answer whether it's going ahead or not. So in answer to your question about, did I sleep at all? Well, not, not well, I'm gonna admit, but you know, one of the big problems was lying in the hotel room, we could hear the rain on the roof all night. And that was the biggest worry, because I'd told these kids I'd be back the next day to do something for them, to dive them out and you know i was feeling increasingly guilty that you know if the monsoons kicked off again that night then no one was going back into that cave and that was the feeling every night really during the rescue listening to the rain on the roof of the hotel you know will we even get back there the next day
0: all right you did mate talk us through the 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 rescue and what happened
1: yeah so next day we, we got the green light we all barrel into the cave and the plan was for myself and four of the British divers including Rick and John to go to the far end of the cave to chamber nine where the kids were and I would anesthetize one kid at a time with a separation of about 45 minutes to an hour and after they were asleep we'd finished dressing them in the diving gear with the full face mask and so forth. And then one British diver would take one boy all the way out through the cave so that three hour dive but we had other cave divers like Craig and and some other British and European divers staggered along the cave so that they were there when the cave diver surfaced with his boy um, there would be someone there in each dry chamber uh, to assist them along the way to help re-anaesthetize the boy if that was required because one of the problems with the anaesthetic technique I was using was that each dose which was given as an injection just into the muscle of the leg was probably only going to last about three quarters of an hour yet they had a three-hour trip to go out so they were going to need top-ups and I wasn't going to be there to, to do that so I had to teach all these other guys uh, how to be an anaesthetist basically in a in a 20-minute lesson with a with the practical <laughs> the practical competency of uh, injecting an empty water bottle Um, and once they'd done that i said right you're all good to go well done congratulations on your degree Uh, into the cave. so so we prepared all the drugs in pre-filled syringes so they wouldn't have to decide on doses and things all they had to do really was if the child started to wriggle or wake up stick another syringe in their leg and carry on Um, which is you know obviously an unprecedented Uh, an ill-advised anaesthetic technique under any circumstances.
0: So you're in the cave, mate, and there's people along the way, and you're basically, you're almost, the way that I've got it in my mind, and this might sound a bit messed up, but you're at one end of the conveyor belt and you're sort of kicking off this conveyor to get 12 young human beings, a three-hour journey through a cave which has water, no visibility, and a few spots along the way where they can get refueled with anesthesia.
1: This yep. summed it up, summed it up perfectly.
0: It's, it must, wow. <laughs> I'm a little bit speechless, mate. I, I've got all my notes, but I'm just like, I'm really now in there with you. And it's just, it must've been incredible, mate. It must've, you're, you're, I mean, you're such a professional and, and relaxed and cool guy you know, and, and I've genuinely watched a lot of your stuff on YouTube without sounding awkward about it, mate. But even in that scenario, your brain, I know you're in like mode, but you must've been, it must've been quite surreal. It,
1: yeah, surreal is probably the best word for it. I mean, I didn't, you know, I was never really frightened for my own safety. It was just the fear of what I was doing to these kids. and. I can tell you that the first child that I anesthetized, that feeling of pushing his head underwater, you know, an unconscious boy being pushed underwater, that felt, you know, as far as your personal morality goes, that felt like I had hit a genuine new low. I mean, that's not what we train for, you know, in in the medical profession. Um, And I genuinely felt like I was probably euthanizing some of these kids or all of these kids at that stage. So I had to dig pretty deep in in terms of just finding that, that courage to do that part of it. I didn't, you know, the actual diving, the actual injecting, you know, working out the recipe and so forth, that felt very much like a, a day at the office almost. Yeah. I know it was, uh, you know, an unusual workplace for, the, for for that day. But, you know, I have worked in strange environments doing this sort of stuff with, um, you know, working in the, the helicopter retrieval service in, in places like Vanuatu and, Um, remote area medicine is not unfamiliar to me but uh, you know you don't start your day's work expecting that all your patients are going to die especially when they're perfectly well and healthy before you start you know it's not it's not cool
0: (laughs) so how long did it take mate how did it go there must have been i can't help but think it didn't go super smoothly what what was it like that actual rescue time
1: Yeah well for me it was relatively straightforward because I would do my bit and then send the boys out with the British divers and I had no knowledge of how any of that had gone until I got out of the cave at the end of the day to be advised that yes all four had survived. Um, So we did four kids on the first day, four on the second and then four plus the coach so total of 13 and um, the the rate limiting step actually was both manpower and the fact that we only had four of these full face masks that we were really confident about. Right. But the last day we had to do five because the weather, we were told, was right. You know, we, that rain was coming. And in fact, we were concerned on the last day that the the river was flooding. Um, and John and Rick, who had seen it in full flight, you know, were, were particularly worried. I could see that. And when those lads are worried, oh, I'm really worried. So. Yeah. Um the, the third day was a bit nerve-wracking just from that personal safety point of view but again once you're in there and and you're underway then I guess you you forget all that and you just got to crack on um but the feeling of being told at the end of each day that all the kids had survived when yeah. I mean, the first day it was totally unbelievable I mean I I was swimming out you know alone with my thoughts on that at the end of that first day just Bracing myself for the news that, you know, these four boys had died as I'd expected and how I was going to deal with that and what I was going to do with that information. You know, was I going to be able to go back and repeat that the next day? Or um, if I did, what was I going to say to the remaining boys? Was I going to have to lie to them? Um, You know, a lot of of big questions there, which I'm very glad I never had to, to face.
0: When you arrived back on the second day, did they ask you, how are the guys? Like, are our friends okay?
1: Well, you can imagine I was pretty um, pleased with myself at that point. So I didn't even give them a chance to ask. I just yelled out, <laughs> they're okay, your mates are fine, you know? And Dr. Parker's obviously waiting for that and he translates. And so then it's like all oh, the hands go up, yeah, I want to go next. Pick me, pick me. You know, they're just, um, they're keen as mustard. But I, you know, I was thinking, what was I going to say to them if, if yeah. even one of those kids had died? And Craig and I had talked about this before the first day, and we decided that I was going to have to lie. And, um, you know, because there was one thing I knew I could not do, and that was drag a child kicking and screaming down to the water, inject them, and and send them on their way. There's no, I had to have their cooperation for me to be able to, you know, do this.
0: Were you the last person out of the cave?
1: Look, that's been written uh, in a lot of places. So I was certainly the last person to leave the far end of the cave, but sometimes I would overtake people on the way out, sometimes not. So, I, look, I'm not really sure, to be honest. But, yeah, um, yeah you're, essentially everyone's on their own, so it doesn't make much difference.
0: But when you exited the cave for the final time and you got out at the other end, mate, well, there must have been a, a, an array of different emotions and, and thoughts inside of you.
1: Oh, you know, I was so exhausted. That was the, that was the main emotion, that was like, my God, thank God I can have a decent sleep and a beer, yeah. uh, but, but uh, it really started to strike me how awesome this whole thing was. As we walked out of the cave that last time and everyone, of course, outside was all celebrating, there was singing, shouting, everyone was cheering and clapping. And there were thousands, literally thousands of people outside the cave, and they had all lined up in this sort of um, procession of honor. And so every person who was in the cave who came walking out got this sort of line of people, everyone shaking your hands, patting you on the back. And then in turn, you would join the end of the line and, and do the same for the next people coming out. And that was, you know, that's like, the, the most exciting and happy, you know, half an hour, an hour of my life. It was just, it's very hard to describe that, that feeling.
0: I can imagine. Mate, I can't help but ask because you, you didn't think it was a good idea. It did work. You got everyone successfully out of it. But did you come under and have you since come under criticism for the way that you guys handled it? And, and how do you deal with that if, if you have been?
1: That's a really interesting question because you will know what uh, the Monday morning quarterbacks are like and I think uh, I was probably quite naive going into this. I probably didn't realise the amount of scrutiny and unpleasantness that would have come my way had any of those kids died. Um, I think I saw one thing on social media actually from an anaesthetist somewhere in the world who said, oh, I wouldn't have done that, that's the wrong dose or the wrong drug or something and i felt like saying well fuck you mate because you know i'm (laughs) i I am the world champion underwater anesthetist and basically (laughs) you can't tell me that it was wrong so um you know that was sort of water off a duck's back but i have no doubt that if it had gone pear-shaped then um yeah i would have been pilloried by the medical community by it would have been wide-ranging and pretty unpleasant i suspect so yeah and that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't have sat well and i certainly wouldn't have received any of these accolades i certainly wouldn't be talking to you you today i truly would have um kept a very low profile and you know gone to uh, work in uruguay or something (laughs)
0: let's keep it positive mate you were in 2019 the following year yourself and 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 craig who you've mentioned a few times you were jointly awarded australian of the year which if you're English, that doesn't mean much, but if you're an Australian, that means an incredible amount. When you knew that you were up for that, mate, and 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 receiving it, it must have been amazing.
1: I'm going to be honest and say it was uh, actually quite embarrassing to start with because you look at the people, you know, the alumni of that, that group of people, and they are an extraordinary bunch. And I know everyone has this imposter syndrome when they receive any kind of award really. Yeah. Um, but you know, the people who have who, who have been given that award have usually dedicated their lives to some social injustice source, you know, curing cancer or something simply extraordinary. And we felt that we would sort of one trick ponies who had, yeah, we'd done something cool and we'd been involved in something very cool. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we were, doing something that was a sport, basically, yeah. that we loved doing for fun. And, um, you know, we just had the right skill set to be of assistance to these kids. And if you had the same skill set, I'm sure you you would do the same. You know, anybody would. So, and look, I'm fairly cynical about these sort of awards. You know, it's it's a popular choice. And, um, you know, the, the, the world, you know, it was a, a global story of success, happiness and, you um, universal cooperation, which the world definitely needed a message like that, I think at, at that time as probably as in, in any time. So I think that's what we represented and that's what we stood for. And um, look, to carry that that flag um, it was a great honor. And um, so I had to kind of swallow my pride and say, look, this is not about me, this is, this is something for the country and um, if this is the message the country's looking for at the moment then we have to be great ambassadors for it and so that's the way I, I, I approached it basically and you know people say well what do you stand for and I go oh. <laughs> I, stand for, I stand for cave diving and yeah. uh, going to work and yeah. being you know a dad. and." Yeah. So, you know, I didn't really have a message. So I thought I had to think on my feet pretty quickly and thought, well, what, what do I believe in and what do I feel passionate about? And that was immediately obvious to me, which tied in pretty well with what we've done. And that was, you know, exploration, outdoor activities and building resilience and robustness in yourself and, and the people around you. And, you know, I think a life of adventure has been hugely beneficial in that regard. And so, You know, young parents, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about helicopter parenting and wrapping your kids in cotton wool and Australia in particular is a very risk-averse society now. It's not the larrikin um, society that we were famous for and I'm a bit sad that we've lost that because we're highly over-regulated now in so many ways. I mean, you only have to look at the... All the controversy around the AstraZeneca vaccine at the moment, and you know this remote danger of a blood clot versus the overwhelming community good that could come if everyone just had the jab. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone is worried about infinitesimal risk um, and personal risk and personal responsibility. So I think our message was basically, you know, do hard things and take your kids with you, and you know, earn a bit of learn a bit of resilience. And I don't need to tell you. About that I'm sure um, you know you, you you shout that from the rooftops
0: yeah mate what a way what a way to end i I can't add anything to that mate i think it's I think it's an amazing story i i still I remember on, on the Bremont chat when you were talking about it, and I, I felt claustrophobic sat at my desk listening to it. And and I'm sure folks that have, have listened to, to, to the show and that that water and lack of visibility. But like you said, for you, it's it's something you love. But I, I still think you're, you're such a humble guy, mate. I think you deserved everything you got. I do sometimes, I, I agree with you that often these awards are... You can debate them either way, but what you and Craig and the whole of the rescue team did for those boys in, in Thailand, and I think for the world, mate, I think it shows, I think it's so beautiful the, the way that the whole sort of rescue effort came together. You guys came from Australia, the Thai Navy SEALs, the Americans, the British. I think it's something that really is quite incredible and and mate i'm proud i'm proud that you've come on the show i'm i'm, I'm proud that we're associated with the same brand because i think it you're, you're very very humble about it mate but it's very very special and i i just really appreciate the time that you spent with me it's it's unbelievable
1: well thanks marcus it's been good to get to know you and you'll be proud of me because i've just started running again and i'm up to five kilometers again so uh how how much further before i'm uh, doing an ultra marathon
0: uh, just a few, mate. It's not far. I, you, I, I pretty much guarantee it. You will do an ultra marathon before I would go in a cave like that, mate. I just. Uh,
1: I, I think I, maybe I, they're both equally improbable. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's um, yeah. The thought still. I, I've literally. There's not been many days since since we chatted on the Bromont chat that I've not thought about what you went through. It's, it's wild, mate. And and I hope a lot of people do a bit more research on you i'll put some links in the show notes and to to what you guys did there's there's obviously now that you do speak to the world mate after your your slight time underground with with craig or 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 away from society to sort of cool off there's there's some beautiful content about what you guys did so i'll share some of that in the show notes if people want to uh to find out more and and Try and understand. I don't think I'll ever understand the magnitude of what you did, mate. It's, it's incredible. Congratulations.
1: Cheers, Marcus. Great to chat.